Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Thanks so much for joining us. We've got a big show for you this week, so let's get right into it. It's caucus weekend. I'm excited. You're excited. Or you should be excited. It's Nevada's moment in the sun. I'm joined by John Ralston, editor of the Nevada Independent, Maya King, 2020 fellow covering race and demographics for Politico, and Joel Payne, a Democratic strategist who worked for former Senate Majority Leader and Nevada All-Star Harry Reid. He also worked on Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Sure. Maya, I'm going to start with you. Um, Coming out of that debate, it seems to me that the consensus is that Elizabeth Warren had the standout performance. And until then, she'd not been much of a factor. And all the media attention was on Bloomberg and on Bernie. Do you think that her performance that on Wednesday night was enough to change the dynamic for her? And I also would like it, Maya, if you could specifically talk about a state you've been spending a lot of time in, South Carolina, if it's enough to maybe give her a chance to move up in the polls there. Sure. Well, I think what we're looking at is a fight for second place behind Bernie Sanders in Nevada. We know that he's been polling very well and that he's had a very strong showing in the state. However, on Wednesday night, Elizabeth Warren's performance proved that she is not only Warren the wonk, she is Warren the fighter that she said she is. And that's something that appeals to voters anywhere. And so, you know, if she does have a strong showing this weekend and and comes in second place, um, in Nevada, I could imagine a scenario in which you have a, no- a strong number of black voters in a state like South Carolina who look for candidates who are willing to prove themselves not only as fighters, but as folks who are willing to make good um, on having a strategy for black voters and actually have a plan. This is something that she talked a lot about on the debate stage. And I think those two things together could actually give her a little bit more momentum in South Carolina that might springboard her uh, to a strong performance on Super Tuesday, which is something that her campaign has talked about and stressed a lot over the past few days. Mm. John Ralston, you uh, were on that debate stage as one of the moderators. Congratulations. Um, Tell me um, first, what did you see up there that those of us who were in the cheap seats didn't get to see and specifically your sense of the candidates? Well, uh, let's talk about Elizabeth Warren uh, yeah. uh, first. She was just uh, just ready, and 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 mm-hmm. she her campaign had been flagging, uh, and so she knew she had to do something. Uh, she she has, uh, and she did. Uh, almost every time that that we came to her, Amy, she was ready w- uh, to go after uh, Bloomberg, especially. Uh, but she saved some of her fire for the other candidates too. She knew she had to make an impression, uh, and you could feel the growing tension up there during uh, the debate. And and I always have the caveat, and, and you know this uh, as well as anybody, Amy. Things can come across differently up there yeah. when you're actually doing it as they do on TV. So I'm not sure how things came across. But the, the most striking thing to me, you know, Warren was standing right next to Bloomberg and his uh, attitude was almost like, why am I here? Uh, I, I'm bored. Uh, I, I don't know why I decided to do this debate. I don't really want to debate. I'll t- I'm, I'm kind of tired. Maybe I'll say my talking points and get out. And Warren wasn't going to let him do that. 
especially on on the issue of the NDA when he had been getting when he had mm-hmm. plugged in his 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 prepared line and he thought that would do it, but she was having none of it. So she, I think that her performance was uh, was the best of everybody. But I have to tell you, it's just it's uncertain whether that's going to affect her standing in Nevada. Although I don't think it's completely crazy to say she has a chance to finish in second place here. Why do you think it's not enough? And you agree then with Maya that this is really Bernie's race to lose. He he looks like the the favorite going in uh, to the without, caucuses. Well, yes, I think that's true. I think Bernie is the favorite. Whether it's his race to lose or not, I'm not so sure. Listen, he's been ahead in every uh, poll that's uh, been taken, uh, sometimes by large margins. But uh, I, I'm very wary of polling first in Nevada and secondly for a caucus where things can change. And, you know, 75,000 people have already voted and they voted before that debate occurred. Right. And and we don't know what percentage of the overall vote that is, but, pe- but people in Nevada like to vote early uh, in regular elections. And a lot of people, I think, didn't want to go uh, on Saturday to caucus and and go through what what a caucus entails, and you know the 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 image of what happened in Iowa is probably fresh in a lot of people's minds, and so they just don't want to deal with it. So you have that going against the fact that the campaigns are going to try to drive a lot of turnout uh, in 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 Nevada on Saturday, and so we don't know what percentage of the vote is, but I would guess it's a very substantial percentage of the vote was cast before that debate, and. Theoretically, a lot of those were Bernie Sanders supporters. The data indicates that I've seen, uh, uh, Amy, that a lot of new voters uh, Mm. came out who had not voted in 2008 or 2016. Uh, You have reason to believe that those are are Bernie's voters. But there's one other thing, too. Uh, When he did very well here in 2016 and came pretty close to Hillary Clinton after winning in New Hampshire, uh, uh, he didn't have uh, any organization here. It was just all the energy coming up from the bottom, uh, the the fervency with which people support Bernie Sanders. This time he has a real organization, 250 plus people on the ground, some real political pros. Uh, And so uh, all the atmospherics would indicate uh, th- th- that he is going to win the Nevada caucus. Joel Payne, um, I want to talk to you actually post Nevada. So we know we've got the caucuses coming up. South Carolina's next week. But the chatter among the political class right now is what's going to happen post March 3rd, post Super Tuesday, with the very serious possibility that we are going to have a situation where there's no path for any one of these candidates to get 50% of the delegates needed to clinch the nomination by the end of the primary process. And we go into the first contested convention for many of us of our lifetimes. And your old boss, Harry Reid, even weighed in on this this week or is asked to weigh in on this. I'd love to get your take, Joel, on this concept of uh, the, the Democrats basically assuming that this thing is not going to end with one candidate winning a majority of the delegates. Yeah, this is uh, look, a cause celeb in the Democratic Party right now is to have a freak out <laughs> after every debate and after every, uh, let's just say, nonlinear um, <laughs> outcome <laughs> that we've seen over the primary process. And honestly, count me as a Democrat who thinks that primaries are supposed to be messy, 
by design um, that the 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 place that the party is in right now is a place where there had to be a lot of tough conversations about the realignment of the Democratic Party. And so this is natural to me. This this actually feels on schedule. It actually tracks pretty closely to what Republicans experienced four years ago with mm-hmm. um, President Trump's ascendancy in the Republican Party. So I actually think if you just look at the atmospherics and politics, this makes sense that we are in the place that we are. I do think um, consistent with what John and Maya have said, that the most recent debate in Las Vegas, I think that that's going to be really telling for a couple reasons. One, how many people voted before that right. debate? And not just in Nevada, but remember, there are a number of other of those Super Tuesday states and beyond that early voting has already started. In California, over a million uh, early votes have been cast. In a place like North Carolina, my father being one of them, many people have already cast um, uh, early votes. Um, Virginia, other places. So whether or not Mike Bloomberg was effective on that debate stage and whether or not his campaign has um, the type of um, you know staying power and the type of efficacy that you would want to see um, in the type of person who maybe could unite the moderate ring of the Democratic Party, I think only time will tell and we will also be able to determine whether or not Bloomberg Bloomberg's lack of performance in, in, in the moment really cost him long term. I think a lot of votes were cast before that, and I think that's going to skew a lot of the results that, that force us to confront what happened at that most recent debate. Well, Joel, I agree with you that this does feel a lot like 2016 with this sense from the activists within the party that there's one candidate who's not part of the traditional establishment. In this case, obviously, it's Bernie Sanders. It was Donald Trump in 2016 on the Republican side. And that the establishment forces have to find a way to, quote unquote, stop him. But what's different is Democrats have a proportional delegate system. Republicans have winner-take-all systems. So there is, it seems to me, a stronger possibility that because of the way the delegate process works, if Bernie Sanders is leading, but not by enough to clinch the nomination. We could, it's more realistic, perhaps, to be looking at a contested convention than it was back when we were talking about it with Republicans. Yes. Look, this is the quandary for, you know, you call them establishment Democrats, but really mainstream Democrats who are running the party for a lack of a better, um, you know, parlance. Do you put yourself in a position where you are potentially taking this nomination away from Bernie Sanders if he's got a plurality of the delegates but doesn't have enough to clinch before the convention? Or do you allow for Buttigieg, Klobuchar, Biden, and some version of Bloomberg to unite to form a moderate wing that overpowers that Sanders wing? That is going to alienate those Sanders voters. That is going to ensure that you do not unite the party. And that is almost going to ensure that Donald Trump is going to win re-election. And I think that's the quandary that Democratic leaders are facing right now. Um, I do think that you know, this next week is really essential to that process. What happens in Nevada? What happens in South Carolina? Um, beyond that, and then what happens on Super Tuesday? I think by Super Tuesday, we'll have a sense of how realistic that broker convention scenario mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Maya, I want to go back to you and um, talk about the role of women voters in this election. I it Just from perusing my social media feeds and listening to voters, there seems to be there's such a hunger from Democratic women to see a woman succeed in this process. Where do you think this ends up? Do you think this is enough now to give either 
obviously Warren had her debate performance, but Amy Klobuchar to stick in this race and to really push back on these calls for one candidate to emerge as the consensus candidate and that candidate being one of the men. Yeah, you know, what's interesting now is that I've heard a lot of dialogue around Warren potentially being the new unifying candidate. And I think that's really fascinating to consider. Of course, we have to remember that that women just simply aren't held to the same standards as men are, especially on the political stage. And a lot of people did criticize Warren for coming across as harsh when she was really just being very direct. But there is definitely a hunger, I agree, um, for seeing a woman on stage. And I think that that conversation will only amplify from here. Um, especially leading into Super Tuesday. And then once we have um, a nominee or if we do have a brokered convention, the conversation will likely switch to if we do have a man um, as as the nominee, there will have to be a woman and hopefully a woman mm-hmm. of color um, as his VP. So, you know, there, I don't think the conversation is going anywhere. I think it's only going to grow. And that's uh, the role of activist groups as well to come in and, and advocate um, for that level of, of involvement, particularly, like I said, among women of color and making sure that they're included um, in this process. Maya King is a 2020 fellow covering race and demographics for Politico. John Ralston is editor of the Nevada Independent. Joel Payne is a Democratic strategist. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. The real winner in the debate last night was Donald Trump. Because I worry that we may very well be on the way to nominating somebody who cannot win in November. Mr. Mayor, are you willing to release all of those women from those non-disclosure agreements so we can hear their side of the story? We have a very few non-disclosure agreements. Uh, how many Let is Let me there? finish. How many is there? None of them accuse me of doing anything other than maybe they didn't like the joke I told. We're not going to throw out capitalism. We tried that. Other countries tried that. It was called communism and it just didn't work. The policy was abhorrent and it was, in fact, a violation of every right people have. What a wonderful country we have. The best known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here? We are sick and tired of billionaires like Mr. Bloomberg seeing huge expansions of their wealth. We need Democrats and independents and Republicans to win. On Wednesday, billionaire and former New York City mayor Michael Bloomberg participated in his first Democratic debate since he announced he was running for president. Though he's not on the ballot in any of the four early states, he's spent hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising, presenting himself as the moderate alternative businessman who could go head to head with President Trump. And those ads were working. He's been moving up in the polls, eclipsing the two other moderates in the race, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg. But his weak debate performance has led many to question whether this image Bloomberg has presented in TV ads will be able to translate to real life. I spoke with Rosie Gray, political reporter at BuzzFeed News. She's been following the Bloomberg campaign. I started off by asking her how Bloomberg's team is responding to criticisms of his debate performance. Well, right off the bat afterwards, you know, they publicly sort of acknowledged that, you know, he he underperformed, saying things like, oh, he got his legs in the second half, he's just warming up, those sorts of things. So they've kind of acknowledged that he didn't, um, that he didn't do like a particularly great job, which is, it was obvious to anybody who watched the debate, right? Um, <laughs> right. So, uh, right. Are they planning on making any sort of tactical changes here for a man who is presenting himself as the savior for Democrats and the one that 
that Democrats should rally around, did that debate performance then completely undercut that theory? Well, the issue is that they don't have a lot of time before the next debate. The next debate is on Tuesday in South Carolina. So, you know, they don't have a lot of time to uh, to prep him um, more sufficiently for the next one. Um, I do think that the larger issue is that, you know, his performance in that debate kind of undercut the argument that he's trying to bring to his campaign, which is, you know, I'm the person who's going to take the fight to Donald Trump. I'm the person you should trust. Go with me. Because... You know, he didn't seem particularly prepared. He seemed kind of shaky. And a lot of voters are looking for someone who is going to, like, really stand up to Donald Trump on the debate stage. That's something that people say a lot on the trail that I hear. All the money that he's spending on advertising, that can buy you visibility, that can buy you a larger profile. And it's it's certainly vaulted him into, um, you know, being a candidate that everybody's talking about and that's polling pretty well. But when it's all him just sort of all alone on stage, that's a totally different dynamic. He hasn't been doing rallies in Iowa and New Hampshire. He's not on the ballot in Nevada or South Carolina. You've been on the trail with him, though. What is it like in that room? What are the voters thinking as they're watching Michael Bloomberg up there? His campaign events are very unusual for um, for a primary campaign. You know, I've never seen anything like it. This is my third uh, cycle that I'm covering now. And um, they're just very sort of lavish, you know, there's catered food and like nice catered food, you know, like <laughs> uh, barbecue in North Carolina, that sort of thing. Um, you know, they're very highly produced, like the stages are very, you know, set up with, uh, you know, it, 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 everything looks very sort of big. Um, and he's been getting large crowds. And when you talk to the people who are there, you know, you often find that they are just hyper focused on beating Donald Trump. And they are worried about the fact that a lot of them are sort of like former Biden supporters that are worried about the fact that, you know, Biden is uh, is fading and they're looking for a kind of moderate alternative. And Bloomberg is making an effective case to them that he can be that person. We've also been hearing a lot by the Bloomberg campaign itself about the possibility that Bernie Sanders builds an insurmountable delegate lead by the time we get out of Super Tuesday and that Democrats may be looking at a contested convention where nobody comes into the convention with a majority of delegates. And the Bloomberg campaign right before that debate put out a memo saying this is this is a reality. Hey everybody, why don't why don't you guys drop out and rally around me, Michael Bloomberg, as the alternative to Bernie Sanders. How how's that been going over? Well, I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, that's that's their strategy is to present him as the anti-Bernie option and to try to um, get the other anti-Bernie options to to go away, basically. Um, I mean, the issue is that, you know, him entering the race has only made the sort of moderate lane even more crowded, mm-hmm. right? And even made it harder for people to settle on an anti-Bernie option. Um, and meanwhile, you know, Bernie Sanders just sort of continues to win. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we still have not seen voters actually test this. Like, Bloomberg still hasn't been on a ballot and won't be until Super Tuesday. So there's actually not that much time left before the, the race is going to kind of be um, more baked in the cake than it was. Is your sense that the campaign is just going to keep doing things the way they've been doing them up until this point, which is spending tens of millions of dollars on advertising in these Super Tuesday states and then assess where they are after Super Tuesday? 
that is what the play is for for Bloomberg. I mean, that's what they've been doing, and it's worked thus far. It was working, you know, pretty well up until this week with this debate. You know, the advertising campaign has definitely been effective in terms of raising his vis- visibility and raising his poll numbers in these states that he's competing in. You know, I, when I was talking to voters, almost all of them said that they had seen his ads um, and seen a lot of his ads. So, mm-hmm. and that's actually so he's, it really has introduced him to um, to people who are going to be you know, searching for that non-Sanders option on Super Tuesday. How does the Bloomberg campaign, as we saw uh, at the debate stage, he gets a lot of questions about stop and frisk, about these non-disclosure agreements uh, that his company had with women uh, who had sued the company. These seem like big, big problems for a candidate, any candidate, but a candidate trying to win a democratic primary how does he get how does he get beyond that with voters well i mean he just sort of has to kind of make the bet and hope that more people will kind of see his ads um and see you know videos of his of his uh of his events then will have seen the debate footage um and you know part of the issue with i think why he wasn't able to answer those questions very effectively is that he's very rarely in a situation where he has to answer tough questions. He rarely does like extended interviews. He does do gaggles with the press, but he rarely does like sit down, you know, adversarial TV interviews. Um, he doesn't do town hall style events. You know, he he goes on stage, he gives his stump speech and he leaves. Um, so he hasn't had actually that much practice recently in having to really defend his record just sort of like on his own at length. And I think we saw the results of that uh, the other night. Rosie Gray, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Rosie Gray is a reporter at BuzzFeed News. Super Tuesday is March 3rd, but many voters in those 14 states that are up on Super Tuesday are already voting, including those from population-rich states like California, Texas, and North Carolina. In fact, according to Elaine K. Mark, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates, there's really no precedent for this many delegate-rich states with robust early voting programs to be voting this early in the primary process. Today, we're focusing on California, which boasts the largest delegate stash of any other on Super Tuesday. There are 20 million registered voters in California, and more than 15 million of them have already received their ballots in the mail. Now, a campaign that fails to focus on those early voters will get hurt. More than a million of those voters have already sent in their ballots. Millions more will do so before the polls officially open on Tuesday, the 3rd of March. To tell me more about the role early voting is playing in California, I talked to Paul Mitchell. He's the vice president of Political Data, Inc., and he's based in California. Your estimate, by the time voting officially, like what we consider voting, begins, which is March 3rd, the day of the election, Mm -hmm. what percent of the electorate, the Democratic electorate, will have already cast their ballots? Like 50 percent. Wow. By the time we know the results in Nevada, 25 percent of the full Democratic primary electorate will have cast a ballot. And by the time we know the results in South Carolina, we're looking at 40, maybe 45 percent. 
will have turned in their ballots. So really the the impact for a national campaign looking at this is that winning Iowa, New Hampshire, those have huge effects because it affects all 20 million voters or at least all, you know, maybe seven and a half million voters that have Democratic ballots in their hands. But winning South Carolina, let's say, has a kind of muted impact because, you know, if your plan is to win South Carolina, then, you know, dive into California, that pool got a lot shallower in the intervening month. What do we know about the kinds of people who turn their ballots in early? Well, we used to joke that the people who turned in their ballots early were the people who had stamps. But even now that we have postage paid this year on all absentee ballots, we're seeing that people get into patterns. I think that there's a kind of a natural thing that people do where the voting experience to them takes a a shape after having voted 5, 10, or 20 times. And so we see a lot older, more homeowners, a lot wider, a lot more Republican um, voters in the earliest vote. And then in the latest vote, the people who drop it off at the polling place, then you start to get to a younger, more diverse, more renter, different socioeconomic population. And it creates this real interesting impact on our election day results, too, because when the first data comes out of just those early absentee ballots that have been counted at 8.01 on election night, you'll find that's a pretty conservative electorate. And somebody might jump to some conclusion as to what happened in this presidential race, only looking at an electorate that is heavily Mm -hmm. skewed towards those early voters. Before the March 3rd primary, 50% of voters will have said, you know what, I've kind of already made up my mind. It doesn't really matter to me what happens in these debates or who drops out or what happens in South Carolina. What do you say to that? Well, it's interesting because every political insider, candidate, consultant, reporter you talk to will say, well, that's crazy. Nobody's going to vote early because we all want to know what's going to happen in South Carolina and Nevada. But the reality is that normal voters, they can't list off the early primary states. They aren't viewing the election in the same way. And so there are a lot of voters who pretty much know who they're going to support and they're going to do it. And there are some other voters who are so strongly, so passionately for a candidate Mm -hmm. that it really doesn't matter. The Sanders rally in Oakland wasn't just a, you know, Bernie Sanders for president rally. It was a vote early rally. They literally branded it with the idea of getting your ballots turned in. And there's a number of things that that does. If you have, let's say, a million voters you're targeting, 200,000 of them turn in their ballots, that means your GOTV universe is smaller. Mm. If you get these votes banked and something happens in a debate or you don't do well in South Carolina, then having those votes in, you know, avoids any kind of concern that those voters could drift away from you. Um, And, you know, just simply having that luxury of having those votes in in the early vote means that they're really going to impact the reporting on election night, because the reality is that people that drop their ballots off at the polling place, uh, like I do, uh, those ballots still need to be signature verified before they can open them. They might be counted later that week. They might be counted the next week. If the Sanders campaign or the Bloomberg campaign or any of the presidential campaigns can front load their voters and get them to vote early, it's a better chance that on election night when Mm. we're all looking at California and we see who, quote unquote, won California, that they have a better shot of having a good showing right then. And so they're actually actively trying to get them to vote early. Now, Bloomberg has spent a ton of money we know on TV there. 
uh, paid advertising, somewhere close to $40 million since December. What, though, are they doing on the other piece of this, finding these early voters? And do you think they're getting a good return on the investment they've made there? Well, I know that they're active and I know that they're working on trying to get the same population and they're trying to get voters who are independents the right Democratic ballot and doing a lot of that stuff in California. They've hired a lot of California-based consultants uh, that understand the process. Um, I think that can be a shortcoming when you come from a national campaign as you come into California. You think of it as just a big state. But being a Californian and having run races in California is really important for any of these presidential campaigns. And so Bloomberg, I know, has been tapping a lot of local talent Mm -hmm. in California. And um, I think we're seeing the impact of the Bloomberg campaign in in polling. He's been making a steady rise. And, um, you know, it's it it has really been the, the thing that has shaped the race in California, both the Sanders overwhelming uh, lead that he has right now and the dynamic of Bloomberg and what's going to happen with him in the coming weeks. A lot of talk about the Latino vote having an incredible influence because you have California, Texas, Nevada early in this process. Is there anything that you are picking up now with the early vote that can give us a sense of how engaged Latino voters are in this primary? Well, it's always an interesting thing because California, the plurality of the California population is Latino. You've got this huge number of how many, you know, residents are are Latino. Then when you look at those who are actually over 18 and citizens, it gets smaller. Then you look at those that are are actually registered, it gets smaller still. And then those that are likely to vote, it gets even smaller. And those actually turn in their ballots, it's smaller and smaller. And so as a portion of the registered voters, they're at about 26% of the electorate. As a portion of voters in a primary, they can be as low as 11% of the, of the electorate, and maybe as I think the record was 20% of the electorate. So it's an interesting thing that to make it really simplified that Latinos are more than a quarter of the electorate, but generally participate at a rate that's less than a fifth of the electorate. When we look at the early vote, we don't see a lot of signs of, you know, some huge Latino mobilization. But that's also true every time we look at early vote. Uh, The Latino population generally does vote later in the process. So we wouldn't necessarily be expecting Mm -hmm. to see that in the votes that have come in in the first, say, 15 days. Paul Mitchell, thanks so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Great joining you. I really appreciate it. Paul Mitchell is vice president of Political Data, Inc. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories, stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This year, something big has happened. In terms of the number of Latinos eligible to vote, that is at least an adult and U.S. citizen, we're going to see about 32 million this year. 
That's Mark Hugo Lopez, and I'm the Director of Global Migration and Demography Research at the Pew Research Center. I also lead our work on Latino voters. I sat down with Mark to talk about the Latino vote, where these voters live, and why geography matters. Mark told me that the 32 million number is a record and that we've been hitting record numbers for a number of election cycles due to population growth. But this year's number is unique for another reason. But it's also an important year because nationally, there are now more Latinos eligible to vote than there are uh, African-Americans. And that's the first time that's happened. So now Latinos will be the largest group of eligible voters who are non-white. Um, it remains to be seen if they'll be uh, matching um, their African-American counterparts in terms of voter turnout. The uh, primary cycle, though, what's interesting this year is that many states that have a large number of Latino-eligible voters are going earlier, particularly California. So that means that a group that tends to lean towards the Democratic Party is likely to have a bigger voice than it may have had, say, in 2016 or 2012. When when California was much later California was much later. That's really the big change here is California. Um, in 2008, though, it was a very different story. Uh, actually, 2008 had more of the Latino eligible voter population going earlier because California was earlier and there was a super duper Tuesday, I think is what it was called at the time. Uh, and there were many more states, which included Latino voters. And so uh, Texas has always been somewhat early in the process. Yeah. So that's, that's not new. That's, it's that's, really that you have California... Texas, Nevada, all mm-hmm. going either on or before March 3rd. That's correct. Yeah. One state you didn't mention is Florida. And Florida is a state that has, it's the third largest state by Hispanic population, also by Hispanic eligible voters, but it's later in the process. Right. It's also interesting because it's a battleground state that has traditionally played a big role in the November election and presidential election years in, in the last two decades or so. What did folks get wrong in 2016 Mm. about the Latino vote that you think they have not learned (laughs) as we go into 2020? I think that there's there's a diversity to the Latino electorate that perhaps sometimes doesn't um, it isn't um, quite captured in our discussions about the group. Um, for example, in Florida, when you talk about the origins of Latinos, there Cubans, of course, are a big part of the state's Hispanic population, but only about a third of eligible voters there. There, though, however, is a growing number of people uh, who are Puerto Rican origin, uh, Colombian. There's now an emerging Venezuelan story, Dominicans in Nicaragua. It's all people eligible to vote. Not, uh, and I think it's important to note how diverse that is. There's one group that you may have heard me not mention, which is Mexicans. They're a big part of Florida, too. They're maybe the third largest group. Yet in Nevada, it's largely a Mexican origin population that we're talking about among Hispanic voters, many of whom are undocumented. I don't know if it's if it's well known that a large share of the um, of immigrant Hispanics in Nevada are undocumented. In fact, as a share of the overall state's population, it is one of the highest shares of undocumented immigrants living in the state compared with elsewhere around the country. So when we talk about diversity, there's a real diversity of both characteristics, but also backgrounds, uh, viewpoints, and much more. Let's talk about 2018. So the, the 2016 election, as you pointed out, all mm. the talk that will because of Trump's rhetoric, we're going to see this record Latino turnout. They're going to come out in droves and vote against him. That did not play. But 2018, now they had seen the president for two years, mm-hmm. were able to sort of judge his actions. Yeah. Did that impact turnout in any way? 
Uh, we did see uh, a sharp reversal in trends for voter turnout among Latinos. So about 11, 11 and a half million Latinos turned out to vote in 2018. Now, to put that in context, um, about 12 and a half million Latinos voted in, in uh, 2016. So this mid-year, midterm election cycle looked like a presidential year. About 40 plus percent of Latinos turned out to vote. That really is striking because the voter turnout rate had traditionally been about 22 to 25 percent in midterms for Latinos. But Latinos are not unique here. There was a surge in turnout among all racial and ethnic groups, among Americans generally. It was a high turnout election. There was a lot of reaction on both sides of the aisle to that election. So on the one hand, yes, some people may have been motivated because of uh, the way in which the president has talked about this population, but also others may have been motivated because of the way the president has talked about other things on both sides of the aisle. Right. So we shouldn't look at that number and say, well, given that turnout in the midterms among Latinos almost hit 2016 levels, that we should assume Mm. that the 2020 level will be Mm. so much higher, right? It's going to like blow through the roof. Again, I think it it depends on so many things and how things will play out over the course of the cycle. It's likely we will see a record turnout just because of population growth. They have about 4 million more people who who can vote. So that's going to have some impact on the number. But it does remain to be seen. And one interesting element of our recent survey from December before the caucuses and primaries got started was the following. We asked Latinos, are you, uh, Democrats, are you, Latino Democrats, are you excited about this election? Yeah, they were enthusiastic about it. Does it really matter who wins? Yes, overwhelmingly they said it matters who wins. Do you like the candidates uh, on the Democratic side? Yes, they're good candidates. But then do you know when your primary or caucus is going to happen? And 75% of Latino voters who are registered voters are Democrats, so they didn't know. Now, that's not unusual. It's true of the general public as well. And keep in mind, this was in December. There was a lot of talk about impeachment. And so um, perhaps there just wasn't attention on the election yet. But this is a pattern that we've seen regularly, that there's interest in the election, but sometimes something indicates that maybe it's not as high as we might think. And that's been true in other election cycles that we've been following Latinos during. So, Mark Hugo Lopez, thank you so much for coming in and talking me through this. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Mark Hugo Lopez is Director of Global Migration and Demography at the Pew Research Center. This is Irma from Miami, Florida. I've never been a one-issue voter, but this uh, election I am, and that one issue is removing Trump and his corruption from office. That's the only thing I care about. I am third-generation Puerto Rican-American, queer male, and on the top of my voting ticket, I am concerned about climate change, justice, health care overhaul, and, and addressing the crippling student debt. I am a Latina voter. Most important issue for me is getting rid of Trump. As far as I'm concerned, he spews hatred, which isn't good for our diverse nation. He is uh, really anti-immigrants, which for me is despicable. He doesn't believe in science, and we are in an environmental crisis. Okay, Mark Hugo Lopez just told us that just because there are a record number of eligible Latino voters, that doesn't guarantee a record turnout. In fact, this is the debate that's happening within the Democratic Party right now. Should Democrats focus on engaging and turning out voters who may have never participated in the process, especially younger voters of color, or should they focus instead on winning back voters, most of them white, who defected to Trump in 2016? 
Dr. Steven Nuno-Perez is Director of Communications and a Senior Analyst at Latino Decisions. He thinks Democrats have only one clear answer to that. The Democratic Party made a decision in the 70s, right, to, you know, to invest in minorities and, and to really go after this community. And, you know, they make up 40 percent of the Democratic Party is, is minorities. That's your constituency. That's what, you know, that's the bill of goods that the Democratic Party bought. Um, but it seems to be that uh, some folks think that uh, uh, winning means, you know, really not uh, placating other folks, right? And placating white moderate voters or white working class voters, however you want to define those, depending on where. I also call it the the Ken Bone model. I don't know if people remember Ken Bone. What steps will your energy policy take to meet our energy needs while at the same time remaining environmentally friendly and minimizing job loss for fossil power plant workers? Ken Bone really appealed to this sort of mythology in American politics, right, that um, I'm going to um, logically go through the arguments and uh, make this rational decision, like these kind of like Athenian senators, right, taking some time off to um, to tend to their civic duty, right? And, and, and you know, I I get why that might appeal <laughs> to some people, and and why that appeals to American, you know, to our institutions and and how we think of ourselves. Um, but that's largely not how how politics works. It's a very powerful um, lure, right? To think that this is who we are. Um, But, you know, I think we need to ask some pretty hard questions about whether or not that is uh, investing a lot of resources in in convincing someone like Ken Bone to vote for you is is worth it um, versus connecting with people who are already primed for uh, participation in your party and, and electing people in your party because you already have people like that in your party who can communicate with them, and you just need to give them a reason um, to to believe that their participation is going to result in something that they want. So Texas is a state that Democrats believe that at some point they can flip blue in large part because of the large Latino population there. Earlier this fall, I asked Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia, who represents the Houston area in Congress, if the Democratic Party should be doing more to register and turn out these voters. The number of people that are being registered has has increased some, uh, and we keep working at it. And I think that the biggest challenge is just having a continual, you know, registration program, because what the parties and even candidates always tend to do, and you know this, we've been on the field a lot, is Registration drives right before elections, and it's too late because you're trying to register, you're trying to educate, and you're trying to get them out. So it's got to be a continual program, and we've been working um, with 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 that in in um, in some of our our counties, and we're doing a lot better when we do that. In Harris County, as I said earlier, we worked um, extremely hard uh, to do that, and not only did a coordinated campaign, but we funded it all locally because we just sometimes cannot get the national groups, the national party uh, uh, to engage with us. So we raise money locally uh, with leadership from labor, uh, from some of our community engagement groups, from some of our electeds. And we were able to raise almost $3 million. And that's all we did was focus on the door knocks and the phone calls, door knocks and phone calls. 
the good old knock and drag. And that's what works. Uh, the more you knock on people's doors, the more they come. But as you know, that's very labor intensive. I know that the uh, Dallas area folks, San Antonio, all our metroplexes are doing it. So I think that's what's going to help us make a difference. And it will be at probably at least one more cycle, but we will turn Texas blue. The other thing I read, this was a group, I don't know if you've ever worked with them. They're called um, Jolt Texas. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this group? Sure. They're, they started in Austin. They started in Austin. Um, that works on uh, mobilizing Democratic voters. They did a study and they said one of the challenges they have in both registering and getting Latino voters out to vote is just a deep cynicism and mistrust of the system itself. Either that it doesn't matter, my, my vote isn't important, nobody cares about the issues that I think are important or doing anything about it, or the system itself is just broken and I don't trust it. Do you see that in your own there work? Is, I think there's a, an element of that, but yeah. quite frankly, I don't think it's any different than in any other group mm-hmm. because you hear that uh, from other communities. Uh, I think it's a, a question of, you know, if the person they voted for or really worked hard for delivers on the promise or and stays in communication with them, nobody wants to hear from somebody just on the day uh, right before an election. You know, it's kind of like a courtship. You just can't come knock on the door the first day and expect it for the person to say, yes, I'll go out with you. It's a courtship. And it's got to be continuous. So I think there are some people, and I found I have found some of that in some of our immigrant communities, and uh, because they come from countries that they're fleeing because of the politics, that if they're here and they're naturalized, to get them to 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 uh, to take the step and, and make sure that that they come out and vote, and they're they're not quite sure. Uh, but then you look at some studies that that even the leak has done. Uh, there's a higher voter participation rate from recently recent citizens uh, than it is from native-born citizens because we take the vote for granted. They've worked so hard to get it. So I think it depends on what community you talk to. Congresswoman Sylvia Garcia is a Democrat representing the 29th Congressional District in Texas. And here's one more thing for me. Democratic voters have told us for months that beating President Trump is the most important issue for them in choosing a nominee. And the best way for a candidate to show that they're a winner is by, well, winning. And Bernie Sanders has been winning. Technically, Pete Buttigieg has been winning, too. He currently holds the most delegates, 22, to Sanders' 21. But that success has not come with a big bump in his poll numbers. So why didn't he get that post-Iowa, New Hampshire bounce? Well, blame Mike Bloomberg. Instead of focusing on Buttigieg's success in these two early states, the media narrative turned to Bloomberg. And Bloomberg's flood of paid media injected him into the conversation among regular voters as well. But Bloomberg's shaky debate performance will likely do nothing to convince the other Democratic candidates that he should be the consensus choice. That means the moderate or non-Bernie lane remains crowded and divided. All eyes are on Nevada this week, but unless Sanders loses on Saturday the caucus results won't change the current trajectory of this race. Sanders is the frontrunner, and time is running out for another candidate to surpass him. This show is produced by Amber Hall and Patricia Jacob. Jay Cowett is our technical director and sound designer. Vince Fairchild is our board operator. Yay, welcome back, Vince. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. 
Katerina Barton is our intern, David Gable is our administrative assistant, and Lee Hill is acting executive producer. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.